talking to each other, just not during the sermon. So this, this month we're talking about how to stay positive in a negative world. There's a portion of scripture that I was reading and I saw a few things that I thought would be helpful to us. So we're going to read Psalm 139 this morning. It starts off, you have, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my laying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the, all, the days, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came, came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake, I am still with you. And then down to verse 23. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So there's a few things that I saw in this portion of scripture that I think can help us to stay positive in a negative world. The first one is everyone has God's undivided attention. We see this in verses 1 through verses 12, but for specifically in verse 4. It says, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. The Message Bible says, you know everything I'm going to say, before I start the first sentence. So there are like 7.6 billion people on this planet. That number is hard for me to even wrap my mind around, but there's 7.6 billion people on the earth right now. Every year, that number is increasing by 80 million people. And that creates some problems for us to deal with. If you think about just like your family, if you have a baby and you have this new thing to take care of it like creates some challenges like you got to figure out how to keep this thing alive and how to feed it and how to care for it and you got to make some more money probably and you got to do all this stuff right when you, it, when you expand that onto the global level it creates some challenges for us the population increasing by 80 million people a year but it creates no problem at all for God it's no problem for God he can handle it perfectly well he can give those 80 million people more his undivided attention each year. God knows you better than anyone on the planet. If you take the person that you feel like knows you the best, the person you're closest to, the person that understands you and gets you, and if that person devoted the rest of their life, they quit their job, their new job is just to get to know you. 
that person will never know you or understand you in the way that God could know you or understand you. God knows everything there is to know about you. He knows what your oxygen saturation level is right now. He knows how fast your heart is beating and why your heart is beating that fast. The Bible tells us he knows how many hairs are on our head. Even if that number decreases daily and you shave your head to hide it, he still knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows what you're feeling and why you're feeling it. Even if you don't know what you're feeling and you can't figure out why you're feeling that way, God still knows. There's never a moment in time where you have one seven billionth of God's attention. At every moment, every second of every day for your entire life, each of you has God's undivided attention. On Monday, I had to build a new set of railings um, on the stairs going into my house. The ones that were there were old. They'd been put there by the previous owner of the house, and all the holes where the hardware went had kind of gotten reamed out, and it was loose and floppy, and if you were looking for security going up the stairs, you would not find it in this railing. So I decided, all right, it's warm out. It's like 40 degrees. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to build this new railing. And April was gone for a while, so I was there with Jillian. So it was me and Jillian, and it was too cold for her to sit outside, and it was kind of raining a little bit, and she didn't want to sit out there. So I took a chair, and I set it up on the inside of the house up against the door, and I stood her on the chair so she could stand on the chair and look outside at the steps at what I was doing. And I went outside, and I would... I started building this railing and figuring out what I was going to do and how I wanted to do it. And so then after just a short period of time, I hear on the door, you know, and it's Jillian. So I look up and she says, I love you. So I said, I love you too. And then I went back to work in and just a little while later, I look up and Jillian says, And I go back to work in, and, you know, 30 seconds later, <laughs> hey, Dad, I see you. So I said, Jillian, I, I see you too. And so I, I went back to work in, and this just went on and on and on. And I tried my best to give Jillian the attention that she needed when she needed it. But there were, if I just kept doing that every 30 seconds, like, I, I would still be today working on this railing, and I would have no sermon to preach. So I was like, I can't do this all day. So I keep doing it whenever I can, but apparently I'd missed too many of those I love you signs in a row, and I was using a saw, and I kind of had to pay attention so I didn't cut my fingers off, and I, I missed too many of those times in a row where she was looking for my attention. So the next thing I know, the door opens, and out comes Jillian. She's got on her hat and her mittens and her coat and her boots, and she comes out, and I was bent over, and I was screwing in the railing, and she came and she sat on the top steps, and she grabbed my face in her hands. And she pulls it over and she says, eyes over here, mister. <laughs> she was demanding my full attention. And you know, there's never a moment in your life where God misses one knock that you do on the door. There's never a moment where he will miss one single knock. In fact, you never even have to knock. As soon as you look to think of him for one second, he's already right there at full attention, giving you his undivided attention, ready to hear whatever you have to say. People are strange. They're hard to figure out sometimes. Sometimes it's even hard to figure ourselves, ourselves out. Sometimes we don't understand ourselves. But one thing that I've learned about people, listening to people over time, is that everyone wants to be seen. 
They want to be noticed. Even the people who say, like, no, I'd rather be in the background. Like, I don't want to see, be seen. Like, if I was standing in front of everybody, it would be horrible. Really, it's not that they don't want to be seen. It's just that they want to be seen in a different type of way than someone who maybe would like to be seen in front of a crowd or something like that. We all have this desire to be seen. And we see that come out in people when people say things like, I just feel like no one sees me or no one notices me. Or if I wasn't there, I don't even feel like it would make any difference at all. So all of us want to be seen. And the thing is that that desire to, to be seen, it could certainly become an unhealthy thing, but it's actually a thing that's placed inside of each one of us by God, specifically and intentionally. And it's meant to draw us into a relationship with him because we want to be seen. And that desire to be seen fits perfectly with a God who sees you every second, every moment of every day. There's never a moment where you don't have God's undivided attention. And not only do you have God's undivided attention, but you also have God's undivided affection. We see that in verse 14, when David says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And when David says he's fearfully made, he doesn't mean that God was scared when he made him. When he says fearfully, he means like with, res with respect, with honor, with care. So David can say, I was made with respect and honor and such amazing care, and I'm wonderful. Why can David say that he was made wonderfully? The reason David can say that is because he's experienced God's undivided affection. When you introduce yourself to someone and the way you interact with someone in the beginning of a, a time you interact with someone, it says a lot about the nature of that relationship. I'll tell you what I mean. Like if I'm at Walmart, and someone walks up to me and they stick their hand out and they shake my hand and they say, hi, pastor. Probably the nature of that relationship is in some way related to this church. Because if they didn't go to this church, they might not even know I'm a pastor. And if they lived in this town and they knew I was a pastor, but they didn't know me, they probably wouldn't call me pastor unless they consider me to be their pastor. I'll give you another example. Um, on 4th of July, I was headed to my friend's house to watch the fireworks. And I was walking down the street, and I heard someone yell, hey, Lonnie. And I kind of like turned slowly and looked, and there was some, somebody was waving their hand. And so I walked over, and it was a friend from high school. If someone refers to me as Lonnie, then probably that's a clear indication that they knew me at a time in my life when I was younger. Because when I was younger, everyone called me Lonnie. Now, not so many people call me Lonnie. So the fact that he called me Lonnie probably means the nature of our relationship was from when I was younger. If I'm sitting on a couch and someone crawls up on my lap and kisses me and tells me they love me, probably that's one of my daughters. Hopefully that's one of my daughters, because if some of you try and crawl on my lap, it's going to be a different story. I'm going to take the pastor hat off and get the crazy hat on. So the way that we interact with someone, the way we introduce ourselves and say hi to someone, it says a lot about us. God introduces himself to us in the Bible. And when he introduces himself to us, he introduces himself as a father. And now that creates some kind of problems for us. Maybe you had an awesome father when you were growing up. He did the best that he could, and he was wonderful in the way that he cared for you and loved you. But no doubt, at some point in time, he failed you. He disappointed you. He hurt your feelings. He lied. He stole something. He did something he shouldn't have done, and it, it like kind of rocked your world and you kind of had a hard time figuring it out because 
He's a human, and humans do those things. Or maybe you had a really horrible dad. There's people who grew up with dads, and the relationship was ugly, like from day one, and it's not any better today than it was then. And that creates some problems for us because this perfect and wonderful being that we call God says that he wants to interact with us as a father because that was the best analogy he could think of. We're not the only people who struggle with this, this thing of understanding God as a father. Most of you probably have heard of Andre Agassi. Andre Agassi is one of the most famous tennis players in the world. Um, he was on the list of the top five tennis players in the world when he was just 16 years old. That was like a feat in and of itself. Not only that, but then he stayed on the list of the top five tennis players in the world for 20 years, which was like unheard of. Up until that time, tennis was not really considered mainstream, but Agassi was so passionate and drew such a crowd when he played that he won over the endorsements and advertisement deals with Nike and Gatorade and Coca-Cola and McDonald's. He was the first tennis player to do that sort of thing. He played for 20 years and dominated tennis, but he got older, and as he got older, he had to retire. When he retired, he wrote a book. The name of the book was Open, and in the book, he talked about how his father made him, te made him play tennis, and he actually hated his father and resented his father for it. This is one of the famous lines from the book. It said, before I was even born, my father decided I would be the number one tennis player in the world. At age seven, Agassi would have practice sessions that basically lasted from sunup until sundown. He was talking about one of those practice sessions, and he said this, my arm feels like it's going to fall off. I ask, how much longer, Pops? I get no response. I have an idea. Accidentally on purpose, I hit a ball high on the fence. I catch it on the edge of my racket so it sounds like a misfire. My father sees the ball leave the court, and he curses. He stomps out of the yard, and now I have a minute and a half to catch my breath. This is the kind of relationship that Agassiz had with his father. And then you could see how it would be hard for him to understand God when God says he wants to relate to him as a father. Kind of the defining sentence in the book is when Agassiz says, I never chose this life. The thing about this situation with Andre Agassi and his father is Andre Agassi actually had his father's, I would say, as close to it as he could, undivided attention. It'd be hard to find any father in the world who paid more attention to their son or daughter than Andre Agassi's father paid to him. He had his undivided attention. Every moment of every day, he was focused on his son. But when it came to his father's affection, his father's affection, his father's love, was distant and demanding. Andre Agassi was the top, one of the top five tennis players in the world for 20 years. He was amazing. But I can't help wonder what kind of a tennis player Andre Agassi would have been if he didn't only have his father's undivided attention, but instead of his father's love being distant and demanding, I wonder what Agassi would have looked like if his father's love would have been warm and welcoming. Our Father in Heaven gives us his undivided affection, but his affection is not distant and demanding. His affection is always warm and welcoming. I have a friend um, who I got to know a little bit when I was in college, 
And uh, this friend is a lot older than me. In fact, his kids are also older than me. And um, he did his best to raise his kids. He taught them about God. He not only taught them about God, he modeled for them what it looks like to have a relationship with God. He loved his kids the best that he could. He provided for them. He cared for them. As his kids got older, as kids do, they went out on their own. And one of his daughters um, eventually walked away from the Lord. And when she walked away from the Lord, it was heartbreaking for him. That wasn't how he raised her, and that wasn't what he wanted for her. He was devastated when his daughter walked away from the Lord. Eventually, she moved away from home. And then sometime later, uh, she called her parents to talk to them. And while she was on the phone with them, she said she let them know that she was a lesbian. They were really surprised to hear this. They had never seen any indications that would make them think that she was going to become a lesbian. They didn't understand it. They were confused. Again, they were devastated by this because they felt like that wasn't what was best for her. So the father and mother took some time and prayed and tried to figure out what, what to do, how to handle the situation. They talked to a couple friends of theirs who had gone through similar situations. And in the end, um, the father felt like God spoke to him and told him, extend to your daughter the same warm and welcoming love and affection that I extended to you when you were far from me. There was a time where the father had been far from God and he, he talked about how the Lord won him over through warm and welcoming affection and love. So he said, okay, that's what we're going to do. We're going to extend to our daughter warm and welcoming affection and love all the time. We're not going to stop. We're going to be relentless with this. We're not going to back down from it. So they didn't. There was times that extending that warm and welcoming love meant that they invited their daughter and their daughter's girlfriend, Mary, over to their house for Thanksgiving. It was hard for them. It was awkward. They didn't know how to handle the situation well. They now had Mary and their daughter in their house together for Thanksgiving. They weren't really sure exactly what the right thing to do was, how to handle it, but they just said, we're going to be consistently warm and welcoming in our love. There was times, many times, where extending that warm and welcoming love meant for the father flying across the country to the other side of the country to spend time with his daughter. It was amazing the way they extended love to her. I saw, I saw this father, um, at, it was probably at a, a conference or something like that, and uh, he, I saw him across the parking lot, and he waved at me, and he came running over to me and said, I got to talk to you. I got to tell you about my daughter. I said, okay, what happened? He said, well, she got married. And I said, oh, man, that's not good. And he said, to a man. I said, that is good. <laughs> um, I said, well, what happened? Tell me about it. He said, well, she called us, and she asked if she could come home for Christmas. We said, sure. Like, you, you know, you're always welcome. You don't even have to ask. He said, is Mary coming with you? And she said, no, Mary's not going to come this time. She said, okay. So the daughter flew into town, and she rented a car, and she came to their house. And she got to their house, and she didn't even knock. She just walked in the front door. And he said before he could even get out of the chair, she started crying. She walked in the door and was, like, crying immediately. So he ran over to her, and he gave her a hug, and he said, are you okay? And she said, yeah, I am doing okay. It's, it's been a challenging season. It's been hard. He said, well, what happened? And she said, I broke up with Mary. He said, really? He said, what happened? Tell me. He didn't say hallelujah. He didn't say praise the Lord. He didn't say I told you so. He said, what's going on? Tell me what happened. He extended warm and welcoming love again. 
She said, well, it started back in September. Back in September, I was um, doing a detox diet and I was working with a nutritionist and he was helping me go through a, a process to detox my body. And that had been going on for a few weeks. I'd been doing it, it had been going well. And he said, while you're detoxing your body, maybe you ought to consider detoxing your mind too. And she was like, okay, I'm detoxing my body. I guess I'll detox my mind too if you want me to. How do I detox my mind? And this girl lived on the beach. So the nutritionist said, why don't you go on a walk on the beach every morning? Every morning, get up and go on a walk. Not an exercise walk, not something intense. Just go on a relaxing walk in the morning. Try and bring peace to your mind. He went over like some deep breathing exercises that he wanted her to do, some things like that. And he said, but you got to leave your cell phone at home. He said, no Instagram pictures, no listening to podcasts, no audio books, no texting your friends, no calling anybody, no pictures, no nothing. Just leave your cell phone at home and go on, go on a walk on the beach. She's like, okay, I feel like I could probably do that. So she did that. She went on a walk on the beach. She gets out on the walk. The first couple days, it's a little weird. She's like reaching for her phone all the time. She's like thinking she feels her phone vibrating when it's not even on her. It's kind of weird. She feels weird without it, but it's okay. She's going on the week or on the walk. She actually does feel more relaxed and it feels nice. She gets to the end of her walk. There was a pier and she climbed out on the pier she let her legs dangle off the pier. She did the deep breathing exercises that he told her to. She felt relaxed. She felt like she was being successful, detoxing her mind, and she went home. She did this for two or three days. The third day, she goes on her walk. She's out on the walk, and she's about halfway through the walk, and she feels like someone's following her. She starts to get nervous and anxious, so she starts to walk faster. And then she looks behind her, and nobody's there. She's like, that's weird. So she keeps going on her walk, but she still feels that way. She looks behind her again, but nobody's there. She gets to the pier. She dangles her legs off the edge of the pier. She does her deep breathing exercises. She kind of settles down from being anxious. She goes about her day. The next day, she goes out on the walk again. She just gets a few steps down the beach, and she feels like someone's following her again. She's like, this is weird. So she looks. There's no one there. She just keeps walking. And she said it's almost as if she heard these words come out of her mouth. She didn't really think it. it. She wasn't thinking anything specific other than this is weird. But out of her mouth, she heard their words come. Is that you, Lord? Is that you, Lord? And immediately she starts to cry. She doesn't know why she's crying. She doesn't know what to make of it. She just continues on her walk. She's crying. She doesn't even know what to think. She feels super emotional, but she doesn't really know where to, where to put it. She gets to the pier. She sits down on the pier. She lets her legs dangle. She kind of takes, does the deep breathing thing that the guy told her to do. She tries to compose herself because she's got a meeting to go to. She heads to the meeting and she goes about her day. The next day, it's time for the walk again. She goes out for her walk. As soon as she said, as soon as she put her foot in the sand, immediately she felt like someone was looking at her again. So she says again, Lord, is that you? It was the Lord. She starts crying again. She's crying for most of her walk. She doesn't really know what to make of it. She doesn't know what she's feeling. She feels like overwhelmed. And so she gets to, to the edge of the pier and she sits on the pier again. She sits down. She says, Lord, I haven't talked to you in a long time. It had been a long time since this girl had talked to the Lord. And she felt the same warm and welcoming love that she felt from her father. 
The last time this girl had had these kinds of conversations uh, with the Lord was when her dad was a missionary in another country. They were in a, uh, another country, and she didn't know the language that the kids were speaking. She couldn't really talk to many of the kids around her, so she would go on these walks and talk to God. So she sits on this pier, and she sits there, and she says, Lord, it's been a long time since I talked to you. It was this girl started her walk at 9 o'clock. She had a meeting she had to be to at 1030. She's talking to the Lord. She's telling the Lord all kinds of stuff that she hasn't talked to him about in years, like all this stuff that's gone gone on in her life year after year, telling him everything that had happened. Somebody walks by, and she asks the person what time it is. He says, 1230. She's like, oh, man, I missed my meeting. This is not good. So she leaves. She goes back, and she kind of, like, dries her eyes, and she goes back, and she sees her girlfriend, Mary. She says hi to her. They talk. She goes about her day. But for the rest of that day, she couldn't shake what had happened. It was like she knew that something was happening with God, but she couldn't quite put her finger on what he was doing. She went went about her day, but she couldn't stop thinking about it. That night, she went to bed. She laid in bed. She couldn't sleep very well. She was thinking about it, and she just couldn't wait until the morning would come where she could go on a walk with the Lord again. So that morning she went out, and again, as soon as she put her foot in the sand, she felt the presence of the Lord again. She talked to the Lord for the whole walk. She got down to the pier. She sat on the pier. She dangled her legs. She kept talking to the Lord. It got to be about the time that she needed to leave. She had talked for way longer than she should have, spent way more time on the pier than she should have, and she said, Lord, I don't want to leave you here and go back to the rest of my life. And he said, well, you don't have to. She said, but there's like this other part of my life where I've got this relationship with Mary, and I've got this stuff that I have going on, and I don't feel like those two things are going to mesh together very well. I feel like they're going to kind of collide together, and it's going to be a mess, and it's going to be awful. And he said, well, I was right here waiting for you all along. And he said, I'll be happy to go with you if you want me to. And she said, yeah, I do want you to. So that day she decided she wasn't going to leave the Lord on the pier, but she was going to take him into her life. So she did just that. She went back. She talked to Mary. It was a really difficult conversation. It was a really hard conversation. They were both devastated. They loved each other. She was crushed. Mary was crushed. But she knew that she wasn't, the life that she was living wasn't the life that she was made to live. She told her dad, she said, I knew that I was living below my destiny. So the dad said, what changed your mind? Like, what happened? What was it? Like, what happened in that moment that made you decide you were going to take the Lord with you off of that pier into your life? And she said, I felt that same warm and welcoming love that I felt from you for all these years. And I decided that my life was best left in the Lord's hands. That's my third point this morning. Your life is best left in the Lord's hands. We want to try and stay positive in a negative world, but sometimes we can't do that because we just try and take our life in our own hands. We try and defend ourselves. We try and do our life the way that we want to do it instead of leaving our life in the hands of our creator who knows you better than anyone else on the planet, is giving you his perfect affection. He literally made you. He literally knit you together in your mother's womb. So who better than him to know what to do with your life, to bring you lasting joy, to bring you peace? David sees this in the last two verses of Psalm 139. So when he says, search me, God, and know my heart, 
Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I had a friend that I, I made um, a while ago. Uh, it was when we moved into our house that we live in now. And this guy would ask me all kinds of questions. He would ask me questions about everything under the sun. So like for a while, I thought he thought I was Google or something. It's just like never-ending questions from this guy. Questions about God, questions about life, questions about his house, everything. I would try my best to answer his questions. And one day, him and his wife, they had been in kind of an extended argument that had gone on for a while. Have you ever been in one of those kind of arguments? I haven't, but I'm, I know some people who have. And... Uh, so this argument had kind of gone on for days and days, and it wasn't too bad of an argument, but the, him and his wife disagreed on this thing. So there was this tree that was planted in their yard when they bought the house. The previous owner had planted it, and it was a pear tree. And the, it had never really had pears on it, but somehow they knew it was a pear tree. So the wife said, this tree is dead. It's ugly. It's hideous. It's withered. It looks horrible. Get this tree out of my yard. And the husband was like, I think it just needs some more time. Like, maybe eventually it's going to bear some fruit. Let's just give it some more time. And this argument kind of went on and on. And I think the husband was losing the argument. So he called me. It was time for backups. So he called me and he said, like, can you come look at this tree? He said, I'm warning you ahead of time. This is a nice tree. I think it's really good. It's going gonna, it's gonna to stand the test of time. I said, okay. So I came over. I looked at the tree. And I'm like, Dude, I don't know what to tell you. Like, the tree looks dead as dead could be. Like, it's withered. There's nothing on it. Like, I just don't see this thing ever producing any fruit. I was like, I mean, I don't know anything about trees, but I don't think. And he's like, all right. Well, that's not much help to me. So I went home, and I, like, of course, I looked stuff up on the Internet, and I tried to learn a little bit about trees, and that wasn't very successful. Um, but when I was doing that, I saw an ad for this guy in Buffalo called The Tree Doctor. And in his ad, he said he would come and he would inspect your trees for, for free. He would come free of charge and give you like a, an evaluation of your tree. So I sent the information to my friend and I said, hey, like there's this guy, he's the tree doctor. He says I'll come inspect it for free. He's like, okay, cool. So he calls the guy, sets up an appointment. The guy comes to check out the tree. So the guy looks at the tree. He walks around it and he's looking around it. And he, he gets all the way around. He comes back and he says, I see a lot of potential here. My friend says, will you come inside and tell my wife? <laughs> and the tree doctor didn't know much about relationships, but he knew enough not to get involved in that. So he said, I see a lot of potential. He said, but I think the problem is that no one has ever taken the time to prune this tree. No one's ever worked with this tree before, so it's not going to bear any fruit. So my friend said, okay, well, what do I do? He said, well, I can come back and I can prune it every year and it'll cost you this much and hopefully eventually it'll bear fruit. And that seemed like more money than my friend was willing to put into the tree. So he said, well, would you be willing to teach me how to prune it? And then I can do it myself. And he said, sure. So that day they pruned the tree and the, the, my friend learned as much as he could. He watched, the guy instructed him on how to do it. And then the wife came home and my friend told him, told her what the tree doctor had said and she looked outside at the tree, and she's like, there's not even anything left. You guys cut everything off that tree. It's completely destroyed. There's nothing there. That tree's never going to turn into anything. You guys are straight up crazy. He said, no, the tree doctor, he told me. He said, I see a lot of potential. And she's like, well, I didn't hear it from him. I don't believe it. He's like, well, I tried to get him to tell you, but he didn't want to tell you. So a year went by. 
my friend told me, he said, there's these little tiny fruits. I see these little tiny fruits on the tree. He said, I think I'm going to eat it. And I said, well, you better call the tree doctor first. So he called the tree doctor, and the tree doctor said, don't eat the fruit. It's not good yet. You don't want to eat that. It'll make you sick. He said, this is what you got to do. You got to take that fruit, tear it off, and throw it in the garbage. And everywhere where there was the smallest little bud, you cut off an inch and a half, like I told you to, and you cut it at an angle. And he said, okay, so I'll cut it off at an angle. I'll throw out the fruit, and then next year we can eat the fruit. He said, no, 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 no. You didn't listen when I talked. I told you this year, next year, the year after that, for four years, Every year, you're going to throw out the fruit. You're going to cut off an inch and a half from every place where there's any little bud. So my friend did that, and eventually, after years and years and years, there was fruit that was actually able to be eaten and enjoyed by the people in his family, and he got to rub it in his wife's face. (laughs) And so I was thinking about it, and I said, you know, our lives are a lot like that. Our lives are a lot like that tree. Each one of us has tons of potential. Maybe somebody's looked at your life and they've said, I don't really see a a lot of potential. Like, you're a mess. Like, you've got problems. You've got issues. Your family's messed up. You have all these anxieties and fears. Like, I, I don't see a lot of potential. But when someone who's a specialist, like the tree doctor, was able to look at that tree and say, I see potential. God, who's a specialist when it comes to humans, he can look at each one of you and he can say, I see the potential there. But that potential is never going to be realized. There's never going to be any fruit in your life until you let the Lord begin to prune you. And that's what David was realizing in this scripture, was I need God to prune my life. We want to be positive in a negative world. In order to be positive in a negative world, first of all, our identity has to be settled and established. We have to realize that we have God's undivided attention. We also have his undivided, warm and welcoming affection. And when we experience this undivided attention from God, when we experience this warm and welcoming affection, we come to the same realization that David did, which is that our life is best left in God's hands. Each one of your lives is best left in God's hands. What I'd like to do this morning with the remainder of our time is I'd like us to spend a little bit of time in quiet with these phrases that David prayed in this prayer that he prayed. So would you just go ahead and bow your heads this morning? The first phrase that David said He said, search me, God, and know my heart. Would you just take a minute this morning and invite God to search your heart? I've got to tell you, your first tendency is going to be for you to search your heart. I'm going to ask you not to do that. Because when we search our own hearts, we usually do one of two things. We either look at ourselves and we go, we're fine, we're good, like there's nothing there. Or we look at our lives and we say, There's just a mess everywhere, like I'm bad on every level. And we're not ready to handle dealing with everything that's possibly wrong with us. But God knows each one of us perfectly. He knows what things you can handle dealing with today. He knows what things you can't handle. So when we invite him to search our hearts, we're inviting the perfect one to come and see what's in our hearts. Lord, would you come and search our heart?
for some of you, this might feel uncomfortable. Maybe you've never done this before. Or maybe, like most of us, your mind just thinks of everything under the sun that you have to do today. I just want to encourage you to quiet your mind. The things you have to get done, they'll get done. And just allow the Lord to search your heart. The next phrase that David says is, test me and know my anxious thoughts. Two thousand eighteen is called the age of anxiety. Everyone seems to have anxiety over one thing or another. The word in Hebrew that David used that we translate anxious thoughts really means disquieting thoughts. In other words, thoughts that get loud in your mind and take over. It could be fears, it could be worries, stresses. And David says, test my anxious thoughts what, he's, what God is testing those thoughts with is his truth. When he's testing your anxious thoughts, it's like he's applying the truth that God knows to every one of those anxieties that you feel. Some of us are facing things in our lives that being anxious is not really inappropriate. Facing hard things, challenging situations, sometimes situations that feel like they're not going to change. We need to allow the Lord to apply his truth to those anxious thoughts. The next phrase that David says is see if there's any offensive way in me. One translation translates that, see if there's any wicked way in me. Sometimes there's stuff inside of us that we don't even know is there. Stuff we weren't even aware of. That the Lord would like to deal with. That word that 
David used there that we translated offensive. It could also be translated to mean idols. If there's anything in anything in you that you were a place where you have taken something and made way too big of a deal out of it. Something you can't live without or something you're not willing to let go of. Something you've even made bigger than God. phrase David says and lead me in the way everlasting sometimes when we see the stuff that's inside of us that God points out it can be overwhelming it could be like I don't even know how to handle this stuff but when David says lead me in the way of everlasting I want you to think lead me out of this stuff lead me out of this place God, I'm placing my life back in your hands. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, we invite you to come and to search us. To do what you want to do in us. Lord, we know that our lives are best left in your hands. And so we trust you with that this morning. I'm going to go ahead and end the service. Um, I know that some of you might have places you need to go and stuff you need to do. And if you need to to head out, you can feel free to go ahead and do that. And I'm going to ask you to look for opportunities to be positive in this negative world that we live in. And if this morning you feel like you need more time, maybe you feel like um, praying that prayer kind of opened, opened up a can of worms and you need some more time with the Lord this morning, you can go ahead and take that time. You can stay in your seat and hang out as long as you want. Or if you want to come to the altar, you can feel free to do that too. And if you have to leave this morning, I just want to encourage you to uh, take your conversations out to the foyer so that those people who need some more time this morning can take that time. Thank you, guys. Have a blessed week.